some great promises to claim and sing about, um, especially after not being able to gather together for a couple of, uh, for a couple of days. Um, I thought that was a great, great way to uh, get back into it. Um, you might not be saying that after the message tonight because we're going to be talking about something that's a little bit, um, might make us, um, might convict us a little bit, but that's, that's par for the course with Jeremiah. Um, we aren't doing our normal uh, handout Bible study uh, because I just, I kind of needed a screen for this one. And uh, this is going to be the last time we look at Jeremiah until after Christmas and New Year's are over. Um, so it'll be kind of a pause, maybe a good break, a much needed break from Jeremiah. We, we, I love Jeremiah, but uh, his, his word to us has been um, maybe like um, Ezekiel and John describes it, um, it. Sometimes it's sweet as honey, but then it's bitter uh, to the stomach. Um, not because it's not true or not good, but because it's so, it's so true and it often uh, confronts us in our sin and confronts us in our really our humanity, um, but it offers us a way out. It offers us a better way, and that's what hopefully we're going to find tonight. Um, every once in a while, we come to those chapters in the Bible. I don't know about y'all, but I think everybody has uh, their, uh, has your, um, has a marker or a bookmark or a highlighter um, covering a page or two in the Bible, maybe more, um, a, a chapter or a passage that really just stands taller than the rest, not in terms of inspiration. Every chapter is as inspired as the other, but there are those that, um, in terms of weight and information, um, they just kind of, you know, bring more to the table and we glean more from them. So Jeremiah 17 is one of those chapters. Maybe it is to you already. Maybe it will be after this. Uh, hopefully it'll be after, after tonight. Um, again, we'll be looking at Jeremiah after the new year, but uh, we'll be spending some time talking about Christmas and, and, and what it's all about over the next couple of services. Of course, um, this may not be uh, going out with a bang that we necessarily would want, but it's one that I think we desperately need, um, one that I desperately need. I, I don't want to admit everything that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I don't want to admit that it's true. Um, I definitely don't want to admit that it's true in my own life or about my own life. Uh, I don't want to admit that I'm guilty of ignoring these truths and dismissing these truths that we discussed tonight. But the reality is um, I do ignore them and I have dismissed them. Uh, for those reasons and more, uh, we have, uh, we're going to have a, a pretty serious but I think refreshing conversation tonight. And, and while we may push back at first or throughout, uh, my hope is that we would consider this information uh, that we're going to discuss tonight and that it might have a lasting impact on our lives. And I know that's a big way to sell a message. And if it doesn't do that, you might think, well, what was he thinking? Um, I don't know how it'll land with you. I know how it's landed with me and, and what I've thought about this text and how I've processed it the last couple of weeks. Um, but I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that our lives could potentially dr experience drastic change in ways that are overwhelmingly positive and overwhelmingly healthy not only if we hear these truths, but if we accept them and if we apply them. Uh, what I've learned through teaching Jeremiah and what I think tonight's chapter is a chief example um, is that Jeremiah just really gets in our faces and really gets into our personal lives, our private lives, and he really exposes some stuff that we wish would stay hidden, but we are glad when it's brought to light because of the help that God can give us as a result. Uh, but, but what I've also learned throughout, um, through teaching Jeremiah is that Jeremiah is easy to let, easy to preach at others with, but it's hard to let Jeremiah preach to us, isn't it? Jeremiah really likes to tell us what's wrong with the world. Um, as long as we're not in the world that he's talking about, we love Jeremiah. 
But as soon as we start turning Jeremiah toward us, or it, when it gets turned toward us, it gets a little bit less than ideal. Now, uh, that goes for the whole Bible, right? Uh, but remember what's on the line every time we open God's Word. And I, I think this is important because this text is so monumental to frame it in this way. I want you to know what's on the line every time you read a chapter of the Bible. Uh, especially when you're confronted with something that you might not necessarily at first agree with or really want to be true. Jesus said this in John 8, that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples or my followers, my students, my own. If you abide, now we know the word abide means to dwell, to stay, to camp out, not just read it once in a while, but live in it and know it and, and, and re- memorize it and, and internalize it, right? If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. You belong to me. And here's the effect that that will have on you. You will know what truth is. And what does he say? That you will never know what truth is unless you know who he is. But if you know him and if you know truth, you can be set free from things you didn't even realize were binding you and controlling you before. So that is so crucial, isn't it? That Jesus gives us this opportunity to be aware of what is, ins- what is trying to enslave us and what controls us. But knowing him and following him gives us a way out of that bondage. As a pastor and as a teacher, my goal, and really the goal for any pastor, any teacher, any reader of the Bible, the goal is always to personally apply and properly internalize, notice properly, the goal when you read any chapter of the Bible is to personally apply what is this saying to me and how could I properly internalize, as in I'm not just going to let this be on the surface of my life, I want this to go deeper into my heart. How can I apply and internalize each text and each message from God? But the temptation, because there's always one, the temptation, however, is to personalize every text. As in, take it and kind of mold it into what we want it to say. And isn't it true? When we read the Bible, and we are tempted to do this, the good stuff becomes all about us. The stuff that we like, the stuff that is promising, the stuff that is uplifting, the stuff that is encouraging, the stuff that seems to affirm and, and, and only kind of confirm what we're doing is right. The good stuff becomes about us. But the bad stuff, and not that it's bad because of the Bible, but it's bad in regarding what it's saying about others. The good stuff's about us, but then the bad stuff becomes about somebody other than us. Isn't it true? But the, but the goal is that every word, every page, every text is to us, so what can I internalize about it? Not, hey, the good's to me, the bad's to them. But I think it's true that we can become selfish with the promises of the Bible, As in, hey, I love the promises, and they're really about me. I don't really care about everybody else. But hey, to me, this is what God says to me, because this is about me. But isn't it true that we become selfish with the promises, but then with the criticism, as in the constructive truth, we can become judgmental with it. As in there's this, this is good, this is bad, this is for me, this is for them, and we kind of categorize, don't we? Now, there's nothing wrong with making the promises personal. We do need to understand the book is written to us. God wants to talk to us. That's personal. But also, he's writing it to everybody else, too. We're a part of a plurality, a greater body. There's nothing wrong with understanding the Bible as a two-way conversation as long as you understand that there's people on both sides of us, right? 
we're on a highway where there's a lot of lanes. And yes, it's between us and God, but there's a lot of other people that are talking to the same God. And God wants us to cooperate and actually become a, a greater body together. On the contrary, there's a lot wrong with making any other criticism and constructing truth judgmental only and not considering it with self-reflection, which is what we're tempted to do. Um, tonight's text and conversation around this uh, text is really going to make clear to us how must we, how must we, how we must guard how we read the scripture. In terms of, we must be aware how we read it. Um, not only that, we must be on guard regarding how we see the whole word in light of the whole world in light of scripture. And this is kind of how this is. We're going to get started tonight. I think we all can agree the Bible's offer to every reader is that we might make right and better decisions from the soul to the body. I think we can all agree that the Bible, what, what, what can you gain from reading the Bible? Everybody, no matter what age, what part of life, what aspect, what area, what, you know, where you're from, the Bible's offered to everybody is that to help you make right and better decisions. From your soul, as in the decision between you and God, that's obviously the most important, but all the way down to the little decisions that might be important to you some days and important to them the other days, but the Bible offers us a way to make right and better decisions from the biggest to the smallest. We might not realize that we need the advice as we find tonight. You already agree. Um, I think what we're going to talk about in this text, you already agree with it on the surface level, on the spiritual level, but I think that we are going to understand that the Bible is offering us help at making decisions on every level of our life and in every level of our life and uh, take the bible away take guidance away i want us to consider how we make decisions because this is going to really kind of make more sense when we get to the text consider how we make decisions which we make most of our decisions without ever consulting anybody's advice much less the bible um, and i'm talking about common everyday decisions that we face small uh, and big areas of our lives I want us to consider this question in light of every decision we ever make, and, and you might think this is silly, but I think this is important. Every decision we make, it, it really would be helpful, it would be you know, beneficial if we would consider every time we make a decision, we would ask ourselves, are we being completely honest with ourselves regarding why we choose to or choose not to do something? Now, most of us don't think about this when we make decisions. We just make decisions, and we've made the same decisions over and over again. We don't consider why we're doing it, why we're not doing it. We just do it. But there is a decision made in our minds. Sometimes we just kind of do it by default. Here's the thing. I think we are more deceived by our own decision-making processes than we realize or would like to admit it, and that's why I want us to think about this. The means by which we do this is so baked into our nature that we don't even stop and think about it, and maybe tonight will be the first time we ever do consider it. And here's the thing. We are experts at selling ourselves on what we really want to do. We are so good at convincing ourselves what we really want to do, we don't even pay attention to it anymore. We learned how to do this at a very young age, and we never think about it otherwise. We have an instinct, we have a nature that makes us so good at this. And let's, make it, let's take it to the most basic and easy level uh, that we can talk about it in, in a way that we can even laugh about it. Think about how often you change your mind about having just one more plate of food. Now, I know that's silly, but let's take it to the basic level. 
Think about how often you change your mind about eating dessert, even though you've told yourself, I don't need more, I'm not going to eat more, I don't need another scoop, but hey, I'll have one. Now, you might have a golden metabolism, and you might have a heart and stomach that laughs at complications, but still, you are good at convincing yourself, you know what, one more scoop would be fine. Now, think about how good you are at convincing yourself to buy something you really don't need or you really don't, you shouldn't buy. Think about how good you are at procrastinating something that should have been done a long time ago. Now, maybe, you're, maybe one of these is an area you struggle with more than the others, but making it as broad as we can. Think about how good you are at dismissing something that you know you should do or you shouldn't do. Or think about how good you are at enabling something you shouldn't do but know you should never do. We all have these sentences ready to go in our brains, don't we? I know I shouldn't, but... I know I shouldn't eat anymore, but, you know, hey, it's Christmas. I know I should be doing that, but, you know what, I've got a lot of stuff going on, and I don't think nobody's going to fault me for not doing it. I know I should, or I know I shouldn't, but I'm just too good a salesperson on my own mind, and in my own mind, to allow otherwise. Now, isn't it true that we all, all, all are guilty of this? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong or right to make decisions like this. I'm just trying to get us all agree that we are really good at changing our minds when maybe we should or shouldn't do something. And this is why I think this is a big deal. If our nature possesses the ability to flip trivial decisions, what must it be capable of regarding major decisions? Because do you think if your nature possesses the ability to make you change your mind on something you, should have do, you shouldn't do or should do, if it has that kind of power, do you think it's going to stop at just what you have for dinner or what you shouldn't, shouldn't buy? Do you think your nature is going to stop when it knows it can convince you to change your mind about something like that? Now, maybe I'm just reaching here, but if this is true, it should be a major concern to us when it comes to so many areas of our lives and decisions we make, our heart tells our brain to go look for reasons and believe our own made-up excuses, doesn't it? How many times have you bought something just because you didn't want to be rude? Is that really the reason? How many times have you done something because it's just this one time and it's never going to happen again? We grasp for straws, the lowest hanging fruit becomes our defense mechanisms, and isn't it true we would be healthier and wealthier if we did not listen to our hearts? We talk about doing, uh, we talk about, um, you know, doing the right, smart, and sensible thing more often than not, or, and we end up not doing those things because our heart says, you know what, you can get by with this one. And here's why. At our core, we don't care what the truth is. We care what makes us happy or what we m- might make us happy. Our heart does not care what's true or what's right. Our heart cares what will make it feel good and we drift toward that if there is happiness available we'll go in that direction even if it conflicts with what we know is right or true but isn't it true what makes me happy today might make me unhappy tomorrow has that ever happened to you and this is where the holes begin to show in our decision-making process. Sometimes we head in one direction. We find reasons that encourage us to continue. But we have equally sensible reasons to head in the opposite direction tomorrow. Think about it. People get married and divorced for the same reason. He makes me happy. And then he doesn't make me happy. What changed? 
People start and stop doing a lot of things for a common reason. Well, you know what? I smoke because it feels good. And then I stop smoking because it doesn't feel good. But it was the same reason, right? The same thing changed over time. Isn't it true that we condemn certain politicians and then our own politicians can do the same thing and we'll find a way to make an excuse for them? We have this nature that sort of makes things up as it goes. That's my point. But in reality, it knows very well what it's doing. We just don't realize it. So in a lot of ways, we've allowed this part of our nature to sink its hooks in us to a point of no return, or at least we just don't acknowledge it. So what if we started asking ourselves before we ever made any decision, and I know this is extreme, but you know, I'm supposed to be extreme, or if you haven't realized by now, I am. I know this is extreme, but what if before we made any decision, we ask ourselves, why am I doing this really? Why am I doing this? Now, maybe you've never considered this, but I think it'll make a lot more sense in a few minutes. In a lot of ways, we don't know why we do certain things or choose certain positions. We just sort of stumble along. But again, my concern is that there's something more sinister at work, something more wicked under the surface that could very well, if we're being honest, and I think it definitely does do this, it influences us, influences us into making bad decisions way too often, justifying bad habits and bad lifestyles way too defiantly, as in, who's going to tell me no? Or who's going to tell me to stop? So I want to talk about that. And it's uncomfortable. We don't really want to know why, but... Here's the reason why we are so prone to make bad decisions and defend those bad decisions. There's something kind of wrong with us. Now, we can pray and get out of here. We already knew that, didn't we? Y'all know, y'all have been following me for so long, you know that, right? Maybe me, not y'all. There's something kind of wrong with us. And if you, just, if you don't agree with me, then you can, you can replace us with Justin, and, and maybe you can let me be exhibit A for tonight. There's something kind of wrong with me. And maybe you. If we've learned anything from Jeremiah, is that Jeremiah's been trying to tell us that for 16 chapters. And tonight is really a big anchor moment for Jeremiah's message. We've been dancing around the historical narrative that's adjacent to his teaching, but I'll just breeze through it real quickly. Remember the context for Jeremiah's ministry. And this will make a lot of sense why Jeremiah comes to this conclusion tonight. In 605 BC, Jeremiah has been preaching, God's going to judge us, God's going to judge us if we don't repent and turn back to him. Well, they don't repent and they don't turn back. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in, conquers Judah, and replaces Jehoaz with his son Jehoiakim and makes him a vassal king. As in, you're a king, but you're not the king. You're going to send taxes. You can't raise an army. Except Nebuchadnezzar is your ruler. You didn't want to accept God. You didn't want to serve God as your king, so he has given us something far more worse. Nebuchadnezzar. You could have served God as king, and things would have been great, but you didn't want God as king, but you got, you're going to have a king, because you need to be ruled. So here's the lesser option. Nebuchadnezzar. Now, instead of humbling and allowing this to sink in, the nation does not have it. Jehoiakim has decided to raise an army and run Babylon off, and that's a bad idea. It's like Lincoln County trying to run, trying to, to take on the country. Uh, it wouldn't work. Jehoiakim raises an army and is replaced in a minute. His son Jeconiah becomes king for three months. 
He tries to raise an army himself. Nebuchadnezzar squashes him like a bug. And to send a message, he takes 3,000 Jews captive. And Jerusalem is a shell of itself at this point. The government is a leftover. It's a remnant. Zedekiah, a 21-year-old, nobody doesn't know anything, is made king. And he's given a very simple message. You are not the king. You are a king. You have no power, so just collect the money, send it to me, and if you think about raising an army and trying to take back control, please reconsider. So Jeremiah is preaching to Zedekiah, accept Nebuchadnezzar's rule. If we get through this, God will bring us out of this. We've got to repent. We've got to humble ourselves. Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, I'm tired of listening to you. He throws him in a well. There's all this chaos the, the ultimate and, and the way this all ends is Zedekiah raises an army. Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had enough. He surrounds the city, starves the people to death, destroys the temple, gouges Zedekiah's eyes out in front of his children, and takes all of the people as slaves. The end to the story of God's people. And can you imagine what Jeremiah must have thought as he watched all this happen? It wasn't because he didn't give them truth. It wasn't because God didn't try to warn them. See, Jeremiah watches these anointed men of God. He watches these kings and religious leaders make one terrible decision after another. And they say things like, well, of course this is going to work. Of course God will be with us. Of course things will work out in our favor. Even though every word of God says it's not going to work. And Jeremiah is just observing this. These foolish people making foolish decisions. From top to bottom, the nation will not listen. And even those that didn't believe the king or follow the religious leaders, even they were trying to find somebody to be their savior as a man. They were trying to make alliances with Egypt. They were trying to find something to lean on and depend on. They wouldn't trust in God. They wouldn't turn to God. They had to have some man or some institution, some religious system to prop them up. Even after God said, nothing's going to save you but me. God had condemned the temple. He condemned the government. He condemned everything, the economic system, the political system. It was all toxic. He said, I've got to tear it all down. Sounds like a similar world that we've lived in, isn't it? Doesn't it? But Jeremiah comes to a conclusion, and he's not done, but he comes to a conclusion early in his ministry about why the nation continued to resist the only solution that was available. And I want you to hear his rationale for all of this. Jeremiah 17, 1 through 9. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, as in it's just, it's, it's un, almost un, an unchanging reality at this point within the hearts of people. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved. On the tablet of their heart, as in the source of the problem is in the heart of everybody. With their children, remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Oh, oh, my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, your high places of sin within your borders, you even yourself. This is the result. All the people were taken captive. And you even yourself shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. And why will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you did not know? For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. So this is God's response to them. This is 
it. I'm done. We're sending you to captivity. Thus says the Lord, Curses is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes and shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. So clearly the solution is not found in man. No political, economic, religious system can, can save these people. And on the contrast, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its root by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. Its leaf will be green, will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. But here's the reality. Nobody in the land in Jeremiah's day does that. Nobody. Jeremiah wins nobody to the Lord. So verse 9 is his summary, his conclusion for why this was. The heart is deceitful above all things. Now the heart is a lot of things. It's the way we love people, we feel through it, we, we, know, we, we, we find joy through it. But Jeremiah says, if, if, if I got to, now he's hurt when he says this. He's also inspired. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked, as in it's, and I don't want to be too, paint too you know, grotesque an image. It's like a dog panting for water. The heart pants for wickedness. Now, I know, I know, I know, yours doesn't. Jeremiah says, every heart, babies, elderly, religious, pagan, right, left, all over the place. Every heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it or who can understand it? It makes no sense. Now, let me try to wrap this up in the nicest way I can. This is something that will be true about our heart until we die. Even for believers, even for saved people, we never reach a point where our belief in God, faith in Jesus, our salvation becomes unnecessary because of this. Notice it does not say the heart is dishonest. It says the heart is deceitful. You know what that means? That means our heart will always strategically manipulate truth and emotion in order to deceive us. And I know, I know, I know your, your grandma and your, your granddaughter or your grandson, this is hard to see this in them. It's hard to see this in the mirror, but I bet you can see it in your spouse. That's just a joke. Right? I mean, they see it in YouTube, don't worry. Our heart will always strategically manipulate truth and emotion with one agenda, deceive them. It's good at it, isn't it? With every potential decision, there's always a potential and a propensity, as in a likelihood, for deceit. I mean, Jeremiah says, these kings, they had the revelation of God. What were they thinking? They weren't thinking at all that was the problem. Jeremiah is sending a message to us if we don't stop and consider why are you doing this really? Are you being honest with yourself about why you make the decisions you make? You will be slayed by your heart and deceived by your heart every single time. 
Have you, ever, have you ever observed somebody that messed up so badly and you thought to yourself, how could they make that big of a mess? Think about when billionaires blow it. And what do you think? If I had that money, man, I'd do something so much smarter with it. Would you? Because we look at people that do dumb things and we think, why would they do that? Because they have a sick heart. And so do we. See, our heart works relentlessly to persuade us into making bad decisions. I'm not saying it causes you to. You've got a choice. Every heart is sinful. We, know, we can know every verse in the Bible. We can listen to Christian music exclusively. We can attend service after service in our churches. And our hearts will still be deceitful and bent towards sin. And now, our culture, our society makes a big deal about this. But you, you ever wonder, you ever hear these stories of, the, of these preachers? There's an article, you can Google it, I don't know who wrote it, but there's an article going on around there right now that's highlighting all the big royal messes that preachers have made recently. Now, here's the thing. Preachers make a lot of big decisions, but they've got a big spotlight on them, especially ones that are in big, big, you know, on big stages and have big audiences. And they deserve the scrutiny if they do something you know, that's awful and hurtful to people. But here's the thing. No matter who you are and what profession you are in, you can know every Bible verse and you can listen to Christian music all the time and you can attend church all the time and your heart is still going to be deceitful and bent towards sin. The only hope for us, the only hope is that we would bring every decision under the influence of God's Word. And if we don't start voluntarily making every decision, taking every decision under God, we will stumble our way out of his will in a minute if we aren't careful. But there's hope. 2 Corinthians 10 says, for the weapons of our warfare, what warfare? The war against our own heart. They're not of the flesh. They're not carnal, as in they don't fall, they don't fail, they don't run out of power. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. Guess what stronghold he's talking about? Your heart. Right? To destroy strongholds. And here's how it does it. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Where do those arguments come from? Where do those opinions come from? Our hearts. How can we overcome those arguments? How can we win? Bringing every thought captive, every thought captive to obey Jesus. As in this is something we must actively, intentionally, aggressively do every day with every decision lest we let our guard down. Think about some things that influence our decision-making processes. And I just want to bring, up, bring a few things to the table before we close. Within all of us are these emotions. Within all of us are these tendencies. All of these influence the decisions we make to others' detriment and to our own detriment. In all of us, we have a nature of rebellion, a refusal to admit or to submit to anybody, no matter who they are. And we make choices because of this stubbornness, don't we? Jealousy is in our nature. We, aren't, we, we think we're angry at others, but really angry because God hasn't given us what he maybe gave somebody else. Greed is in our nature. We want more and we'll do anything to get more. Anger is in our nature. When somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them. 
We also have guilt and insecurity in our nature. We feel bad about ourselves and will often do things to cause more pain. It makes no sense, but it's part of our nature. We do things in retribution against others. We do things in defiance of others. We do things in attempt to bolster our own image or status. What if, what if we started considering the why behind the what's and the how's that run our lives? And they do run our lives, don't they? What if we started considering the why? Why are we doing these things really? Why do we respond that way? Why do we treat them that way? Why do we do this or why do we dwell on that? The real reason we don't, the real reason we go there or don't go there, choose to do this or choose not to do this, think about how many people, think about how many of us lie to ourselves about the reasons we do things. So many of us, don't we? Think about how many of us lie to ourselves about the reasons we do things. Married couples, single people, people who abuse substances. Now, I'm not a marriage counselor, but let me give you some advice. And this goes for really any realm of life. Think about how often two people lie about what's really dividing the relationship. Think about how often we lie to ourselves about what's dividing our churches. What's the real reason? What's the real reason that one or both of us continue to pursue the wrong direction. Our society has accepted so many lies as acceptable excuses for bad behavior, bad decisions, and bad directions. We just have. What if we all just started considering the real reasons behind so many of the decisions that haven't led to better lives? Then and only then we might catch our hearts successively deceiving us and we might bring our hearts under the guidance of God, under the guidance of his word. Verse 10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God can save us from these traps that our hearts get us in only if we allow him. Verse 12 says, there is a glorious high throne. From the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. All, or, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. And we are left in shame so often, aren't we? For too long, we've been a generation that simply bows to what feels right, not in a carnal and sinful way alone, but in a selfish and cowardly way. As in, rather than confronting the source of what's dividing our families, our country, our relationships, our churches, the source is disabling us from being functional and, and, and beneficial members of society, we just bow to our heart and we fortify ourselves behind our own intuitions and our own instincts. And to what result? We see others as commodities. We see others as obstacles. And we'll continue to do that. Until... We admit that our hearts are flawed. We will remain divided, isolated, and destructive to ourselves and to each other. And I say this in the nicest way possible. Our hearts are ticking time bombs. They have one agenda, cause as much damage and require as much cleanup as possible. Jeremiah 18 
God sends a message through time about the solution for our hearts that we can experience and need to experience not just once, but every day with every decision we make. Listen to this in closing, 18 chapter or 18 verse 1 through 4. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it into another vessel. What vessel do you think he's talking about? Our hearts. As it seemed good to the potter to make. You can turn over to Jeremiah 32, and you can read how God says, God, I can give you a new heart. Maybe 31. But the vessel in the hand of the potter is the heart that Jeremiah says was doomed otherwise. So are we allowing the potter to shape our hearts and decisions that seem good to him? Are we submitting to him or are we just doing what feels right? Or do we even think about it? Now, I'll tell you what they say to Jeremiah, 18 verse 12 says, They said, that's hopeless, so we'll walk according to our own plans, and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Now, he put evil in their mouths. They didn't think they were evil. Jeremiah's just saying what they did with their actions. We live in the, you know, and I love Disney, and I, love, I grew up watching it, but we live in the follow your heart generation. Everybody thinks their heart just has their best interests in mind but it doesn't. It doesn't. So what describes us? Are our lives in God's hands or our own hand? Here's the secret. Every decision we make reflects the truth. We may not admit which is true, but guess what? Everybody that watches us knows the truth. Every decision we make reveals if our life is in God's hand or our hands. So what do people see when they watch you? Now, they shouldn't be watching you, but they do. So, What's your spouse see? What's your children see? What are your employees, your coworkers, your church family? We can go on and on. Because it's plain to everyone, sometimes it's not so plain to us. So we must begin asking this question and consider, what is shaping the decisions we make? Are we following our hearts or are we following God? The difference between the two is vast and stark and revealing. So may we take our hearts down to the potter's house every morning, every afternoon, every night before we make any decision. At every crossroads, take your wicked, sinful, deceitful heart and say, God, I don't trust myself with making this decision. This is so liberating if you do this. There's jealousy and there's rebellion and there's lust and there's greed and there's hatred and there's anger and there's insecurity, and there's guilt, and there's fear, and there's so much in my heart that I can't be trusted with making these decisions anymore. So God, could you make something out of this mess? Do you think he can do something with it? Every decision reveals that something big's on the line.
You see, not only what we do is on the line, but who we are is on the line. And not only who we are, but whose we are. God's or sin. So who are you? Whose are you? Jeremiah said it's desperate, it's terrible, it's, there's no hope, but God says there is hope. Come down to my house. I can help you out. Sometimes I find myself like Jeremiah and I'm thinking, Lord, there's nothing that can, that can make things better. And God says, you of little faith, you know where I live. I hope I'll see you there in the morning. We don't have to wait till the morning. Let's go down to the potter's house tonight. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for this message. Lord, I know my own weakness kept me from delivering it as I needed to or as you're worthy of. But God, I pray you might would show us tonight the weakness of our own heart. And you're a good father. You don't often like to criticize us, Lord, but your truth makes it very clear to us that we really can't trust ourselves with making decisions that are so big and important. Because what's on the line is not just who we are, but whose we are. And God, we can't handle ourselves. We can't save ourselves, but you can. So Lord, help us to go down to the potter's house tonight and say, Lord, here's my heart. It's deceitful. It's wicked. It's desperately messed up. But could you take this mess and make something out of it? Lord, I trust that you can do that with mine. You can take this heart of stone and you can make it a heart of spirit and truth. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.